that's why I said it's more Lego movie than Toy Story. This is not something I would bring really young child to. By about, well, puberty, I think that it would be appropriate. But younger kids, it's not really about playing with toys. It's about all the cultural things that go with playing with toys in a very droll and wry and in some ways biting commentary. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk Barbenheimer, Oppenheimer and the Barbie movie, starting with Oppenheimer. So Mike, from the get-go, I want to ask you how you saw this, because I saw it in IMAX. And when I sat down, there were two, actually, there was a woman sitting in my seat. And I said, oh, you know, I think you're in my seat. And she said, oh, you know, we were up front, but it's just, it's so loud. This was during the previews. It's just so loud that they were in the back basically hiding from the sound. And I thought, wow, why did you pick IMAX? Because, you know, they make the sound so, you know, the chair shake. So they were already from the get-go just overwhelmed by the sound from the previews. And by the time we actually get to the movie, and I don't think it's a surprise that there's at least one bomb that goes off, that woman sitting next to me screamed and grabbed my arm. And then she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, it's fine. But how did you see it, Mike? And what was the sound quality like for you while watching it? I did not see it in IMAX, and I'm wondering that. Did you and this woman share the same seat? I mean, it sounds like you (laughs) made a new uh, new friend. You made a new friend. No, I mean, there was nothing unusual about the screening I I, I attended. But, you know, when you mentioned previews being loud, this is an irritant all the time, but they're they're blastingly loud. So even Mm -hmm. though I go to the movies all the time, the previews are just too too loud. It's like the sledgehammer approach. I mean, the previews themselves are not subtle, right? Even for subtle movies, the previews are not subtle. That We can do a whole show just on that. (laughs) And the other thing, too, is since you got me started on this, when you're going to see a, a relatively long film, and Oppenheimer is a full three hours. Now, I oftentimes, you know, complain about movies being too too long. This is a case where I would say three hours was warranted. I mean, I, I didn't feel the film was too long. So, you know, I don't, uh, some of my favorite films are really long. So so it's not that kind of agenda I'm, I'm working here. But namely the fact that when you're going to have like a three hour movie, I realize it'll be like trailers before it. But, you know, I saw about 10, 10 minutes worth of trailers before this. And I think sometimes it's just the point of overkill, don't you? Sometimes like, you know, when the trailers are already blasting, you feel like your eardrums have been pierced before the movie even starts. And, and with Oppenheimer, you know, they're going to be aspects of it that are are really loud. But beyond that, you know, one of your opening observations, as we talk in, in midsummer, of course, you know, Oppenheimer and Barbie just coincidentally were opening it at, at, at the same time. And it really did become a big movie event. And, and you know, both films have done well, particularly Barbie, uh, incredibly well. But the fact that, you know, as someone who loves movie going, it was so nice to have, you know, a full theater. So nice to have big crowds turn out that way. So should we start talking about the movie itself? Yes, we should, because there's a lot to say about around the movie, but let's talk about the movie itself. I agree with you that, yes, it's very long, but it was worth it. But I just wonder why, just a little, one little sidebar. If you're going to show a movie that's three hours, could you cut the um, previews down just a little? Well, that was actually implicit in what I was saying. And I, and that's why it's an irritant for me. Like, if you know it's a three-hour film, do you really want to give people a barrage of 10 minutes of previews that way? Uh, I mean, I'm happiest actually just with one or two previews. That does it for me. Uh, you know, that's my that's my hors d'oeuvre. That's my appetizer. Beyond that, it's like a meal of appetizers. It's just too much, you know. Uh, so, yes, I, I share your feeling on that. In terms of the film itself, although I thought three hours was warranted, it does probably go on longer than it needs to. And my major, I mean, it's a serious film and I respect it. And there are aspects of it that are really very, very good. But my main reservation about the film is I think, and this is something Christopher Nolan's been guilty of before, 
I think it has an overly busy editing scheme. And, and you know, as part of that, some of the footage is in black and white. Most of it's in color. It doesn't go to the extreme of, of an Oliver Stone biopic that way. It's not that kind. It's not quite as frenetic as that. But there are times where it seemed overly busy, never confusing, but at times almost borderline confusing. And I'm not saying the film needs to go in strict chronological order, but I just thought things, they, they got a little carried away in the editing booth, if you will. I, I just thought things were a little too involved there. And I could all always ultimately pull it together in terms of the timeline and what goes on in the title character's life. But at times it just seemed, you know, hectic that way beyond whatever was warranted. Let's hit that nail on the head because that was actually my major reservation about the film. How about you? I guess I had watched Batman and Little Boy again, just to sort of orient myself into, you know, the previous time we all sat through that kind of story. I guess what was going through my mind when I was watching it was that I had started off by noticing that the people sitting near me were already distressed by the experience. And what struck me was how tone deaf the theater people were, that they were getting all these people coming to the movies who didn't usually go to the movies. So three hours is a big ask. And then when you front load 20 minutes of really loud previews, they don't know that they're supposed to expect that. And the previews themselves were things like horror movies, with jump scares and loud noises. And I thought they traumatized some of the people in the audience before they even showed the movie. That was the only point that I wanted to make. Once you actually get into the movie, I thought that it was incredible. I, I liked the way the black and white covered what was objectively true, where the color scenes were more subjective. Mike, talk a little bit about how you feel about Christopher Nolan being the one to do this, because he's just so good at atmosphere. Well, actually, that's his great strength, I think, as a filmmaker. When you think of earlier uh, Christopher Nolan films, the one I think of specific or relative to this film, Oppenheimer, would be Dunkirk, mm -hmm. because that's another example of what I call an immersive experience. He really knows how to put you in that time and place. So on the one hand, I do think that this film in particular, Oppenheimer, is, as I said earlier, overly busy with the editing scheme, with the mix of black and white and color and so on, and just kind of scrambles the chronology in ways that are borderline confusing. By the same token, uh, even with that major reservation, uh, he really does put you into the mind and, and the life of the of this title character. And historically, really, uh, he does his homework, as they say, right? It's, it's really persuasive in terms of when you read about the history of this period, he's really nailed it. He really knows, particularly like when you get at the level of whether a scientific lab or a congressional hearing room, he knows how, the, speaking of atmosphere, how those places work, how they look, and so on. And that actually really was quite impressive throughout the film, the way in which he was able to immerse us in all of that. So, so, you know, a lot of credit is due to him in that respect, because, you know, I've seen other films about this time period and I've read books about, you know, Oppenheimer and, and other atomic scientists. And, and I think, you know, this is somebody who just takes it when you say serious, he takes it seriously. And that's why even though I thought, you know, three hours was a bit much and, and, and rather hectic in the way he put it together, I survived it. You know, I, I got through that. And, and, and I think that, you know, it is a movie worth seeing. I think, as you mentioned earlier, for the occasional moviegoer who's drawn here because the reviews are so strong, and you know, at the end of the year, it's going to get so many Academy Award nominations in every category, right? With, with all that, it, yeah, it's going to pull some people. But you know what? That, that's good. Get, get people out of the house and into a movie theater. And, you know, in some cases, their, their interest might be more history than, than cinema, if you will, right? They, they want that, that politics. And, and it delivers. You get that. Also, it's, you know, in, in terms of its story, it's about a race. 
which is always a good frame because it's clear what the stakes are and, you know, the, the speed at which you must move. But after the premiere, Paul Schrader said that this movie was the best, most important film of the century. What do you think of that statement? Well, you know, I, I've met Paul Schrader and I've seen all of his movies as, as writer and director. And he's a tough customer. He doesn't give praise readily. So I wouldn't go as far as he goes with that quote, but I respect him. You know, I, I, if he says that, that, there are people who really, really admire this film and, and I realize more, more than I do. And having, you know, criticized it on certain grounds, I can understand why Nolan, not just by temperament, but, but by way of this particular subject matter, why Nolan would do this here. Because think about the basic setup in terms of a several year period of doing intensive research and arguing with your fellow scientists and with the politicians and so on. A worst case scenario would be some guy standing at a chalkboard writing on it. And, and, and it must be hieroglyphics from my perspective, right? I mean, I, I yeah, I got through science classes, but not to this degree, right? So he's writing on the board. Are you going to have a static shot just showing him writing on the board like that? There are some of those shots in this film, but thank goodness they're, they're mixed in, in in other ways. And so even when you get the great Albert Einstein, you know, he's not writing at a chalkboard. He's like walking beside a pond or something. And, and, and I'm saying that in a way that sounds facetious, but actually, if you're a filmmaker, you want to think about ways of animating what for the general public and even for an educated public, unless you're a scientist, is going to be rather difficult subject matter. I mean, by difficult, I don't just mean the bomb itself, but the whole, the technology involved and all that. It's not easy subject matter. How deep do you want to go with that? I thought it managed to convey a lot of that information in a way that I, as very much a layman, a rather stupid layman, could understand. And I think it's to the credit of the film that it actually does, you know, step by step, how do you build the bomb? And then politically, how do you get that through not just the United States government, but then by way of cold war politics or what would become cold war politics how do you get that during world war ii you've got stalin who's your ally but not really your ally should you share information with him and then of course you know moving into the post-war period as the film does how does all that play out within a cold war context that is a lot of scientific and political material and i think nolan is able to convey that very well actually um, I want to give a shout out to killian murphy who i think is wonderful in this and very cinematic I liked him in other things. I think he's excellent in this. I think there's a Best Actor nomination in there. But this is such an ambitious kind of story, even though it doesn't cover everything that's in Batman, a little boy. But I mean, how much longer do you want to sit there after three hours to flesh out every possible storyline? But it is kind of throwing down a gauntlet here. Like this was anticipated, delivered in so many ways. It is uh, cinematic, important, all those things. Paul Schrader mentioned. So in terms of throwing down a gauntlet, what do other movies have to achieve to outpace this one? Well, I don't know if I would look at it that way, because, you know, a film like this doesn't come along all that often, and, and nor should it necessarily. Uh, you know, as biopics go, it's an, an extremely serious subject. And, and it's something that, you know, you know, it's, I, I don't see this as something that's going to set up a sequel. Thank goodness, you know, <laughs> you know unless he and, and Barbie co-star or something. I mean, I, I don't I don't see that happening. And I don't necessarily see people wanting to get this is not the sort of film where people want to get on the bandwagon. Who should we do next? Now, there have been periods in Hollywood history, actually Hollywood in the late 1930s, when there are a number of biopics. 
And it was sort of glossy, serious studio subject matter because it would you could have actors showcased as famous scientists and politicians, this and that. You would get Academy Awards and other nominations. That actually was a period when, for, for whatever reason, there was a kind of inspirational value and, and, it, and it had the imitation factor, even if the next biopic was from somebody of a different century and different field. I don't know if I necessarily see that happening here or, or if I want it to happen. You know, I, I can't imagine a filmmaker right now sitting down watching Oppenheimer and saying, I'm going to top that. You know, it just it just doesn't seem like something that's going to happen. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you on and everything you just said about that movie. Unless you have another thing that you want to say about it, the last thing I was going to say about Oppenheimer was the difference in the demeanor of people leaving Oppenheimer could not have been different from the people leaving Barbie. Uh, everybody leaving the Oppenheimer movie versus, you know, thinking about the seriousness of what they just watched and you know, history and everything. Barbie is a completely different mood. You've just reminded me of a New Yorker cartoon from some years ago. It, it, it's set at a, it's a one panel thing. It's set in a multiplex and like all four movies are letting out at the same moment. And you can judge just from the expressions on people's faces, <laughs> what kind of movie they were watching. It's so funny. So it's exactly the experience you've described. So let's move on to Barbie. And I'm just going to start off by saying, I'm just going to put it out there, Mike. I'm guessing that I probably played with more Barbies than you. Uh, that's a safe assumption. <laughs> um, as, as we speak, you know, Barbie has made more than a billion dollars around the world. It, it's such mm -hmm. a huge hit. And I loved, I mean, the film is really enjoyable. So don't get me wrong. I really enjoyed it. But I enjoyed the audience experience as mm -hmm. much as the film itself. I went to a sold out screening. Uh, I don't want to say I was like the only person not dressed in pink, but there were a lot of people in pink outfits and then posing for photos afterwards. The whole event experience there. It was so much fun just seeing it with the audience and the audience just loved every moment of it. It was like the best advertisement for movie going, for actually seeing a movie with other people. Yes, even strangers sitting next to you. So, so what better post-pandemic experience there? And so, you know, what I find curious from a historical perspective, when you mentioned playing with Barbies, uh, this uh, plastic doll, I'll call her that, uh, this plastic doll was, was created in 1959. And so generations of, of girls and, and young women would, would have played with it and, and known it. And actually, the audience I saw it with was overwhelmingly female and a lot of young women, actually, women in their 20s and 30s going with their gal pals, you know, and dressing up. And, and I thought, well, that, what a hoot. That was that was just like really an interesting phenomenon. And, and it's been getting audiences, you know, all through the summer. And now, like other folks are going like uh, uh, older people, like, what's this all about? You know, so, so like older women, even men going to see it. Right. So it, it's demographically expanding that way. But the point I want to make is there, there's been an evolution of attitude towards Barbie. By the early 1970s, and what's sometimes called second wave feminism, Barbie was vilified. It, 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 and in fact, this film is keen. Greta Gerwig is very smart as, as a director. She knows all this, right? And, and so by the early 70s, you know, the feminists would have said, well, it's so stereotypical. I mean, Barbie's career options can be, you can be a stewardess or a stewardess, you know, and just a few outfits, if you will. And, and they really reviled the, the very notion of Barbie. What happened there, and you can please fill in on this, but what happened was, you know, at least twofold. The first fold certainly would be that, you know, within the Mattel industry, within the business, you know, how to make Barbie more relevant, how to bring her up to date. It's almost like sort of like a Betty Crocker makeover or something. What can we do to, to, to make this character more contemporary? And so they gave her more outfits. And I'm not, I'm not even being facetious there. It's like, you know, well, she can dress as this or that. She can be different things as women could be, right? So the film perfectly picks up on that. Uh, the, the fact that, you know, the uh, Margot Robbie uh, 
main Barbie is referred to as stereotypical Barbie. She's playing off of that 1959 stereotype. But there are multiple Barbies here. And I love early in the film when she's driving down the street and say, like, hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. But among the other ones she's talking to, there's like even a presidential Barbie. You can be the president. You can be a physicist. All these different career options where if you're Ken, you can only be Ken. We can get to that. But but Barbie can be anything she wants to be in, in this female universe. So by way of female empowerment, that is like the, the our notion now of Barbie. But that's the first fold. The second fold is that because Greta Gerwig is keenly aware of that whole history and not always complementary history of, of the doll, if you will, the fact that the film has a lot of fun with that. It plays off of all the earlier stereotypes. And, and I thought that, you know, one reason I really enjoyed the film is it's a very smart dumb film. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying dumb as a put down whatsoever, but there's the, the plot is so ridiculous at times, right? It's just so far-fetched. Like even within its own rationale, its own universe, like what? Why are these Kens fighting each other? What's going on here? Even within some of that kind of confu- quasi-confusion, the film actually has so many cultural reference points and, and makes them extremely well. The thing I really did love about the film is, and where it really cleans up is in areas of production design and costuming and all that, it is brilliant, actually, the way it, the way it creates this world for us. And I just loved all that. And what made me laugh so loud, and I don't laugh out loud all that often, but where I really laughed out loud is, you know, each Barbie in, 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 you know, in, in the Barbie world, she has her own house. And they're all like see-through houses, right? You, know, like you can see, you know, she's like, and of course, you know, because they're plastic dolls, when they're eating, they're not really eating. It's just like making the motions of eating and so on. So you see their world. And then somebody, one of the visitors to this world asks, like, but where, where do the Kens live? And the question has never occurred to Barbie. <laughs> she has no idea where the Kens, I'd laugh so loud. She has no idea because the Kens essentially only exist when, when she needs a the Ken. Barbie looks at him. Yep. When she looks at him, when she needs him, when she looks at him. Otherwise, it's like he doesn't exist. So you can understand why Ken is upset there. The final thing I'll say before handing it over is Margot Robbie, is, she's really good in this. I mean, it's, it's great casting. But you know who steals the pictures? Ryan Gosling is yes. Ken. That is a great, great performance. He plays dense like nobody can play dense. He's just really, really terrific what do you think well i'm gonna say that i thought kate mckinnon stole the show but i have other things i want to mention based on what you said loved the fact that all the barbies are named barbie because i had lots of barbies that they were not named barbie we gave them different names but it was so funny the way they would greet each other hi barbie hi barbie supreme court barbie president barbie who was Issa Rae, fabulous so when we left the movie and we're wearing our pink clothes We walked past the Cheesecake Factory where some ladies were sitting outside eating and they were wearing pink. So we said, hi, Barbie. And they looked up and said, hi, Barbies. It like went with us when we left the movie because we'd all it was almost like you went over to somebody's house and played with toys. And for people who haven't seen it, I want to say that it's more Lego movie than Toy Story because I just thought it, it had more of that kind of sensibility. But in terms of marketing, they could not have done better with this movie. If you go to Google and you do a search for Margot Robbie or Ryan Gosling, all these pink sparkles come up. You know, just very, very clever things like that. And Margot Robbie had said to Greta Gerwig that um, she wanted a slide that went from her bedroom to the pool. And so they put that in there just because she had had a dream house when she was growing up. I did not have one. Totally jealous of her. But Kate McKinnon plays the weird Barbie. And that to me was the funniest part of the whole thing. That and all of the little references to childhood play. Like, you know, you would settle a dispute with rock, paper, scissors. And if that didn't do it, then you went to the special box where you kept, you know, the fortune teller thing. It was just such a kid sensibility to it. Now, in terms of Ryan Gosling, he makes a great Ken. And he said he was motivated to take this role when he saw his daughter's Ken doll face down in the dirt next to a, you know, squeezed out lemon. 
And so he called up Greta Gerwig and he said, I will be your Ken. His story needs to be told. Funny, funny stuff. I mean, and I love Greta Gerwig. I think I've seen almost everything she's made. I think she's brilliant. I think this was a really good choice for her. I think the things that she did with it were what needed to be in the movie. And I love the fact that the older woman you see on the bench is Anne Roth, who is the costume designer, who I think, I agree with you, Mike, did a fabulous job. I'm just thankful that when I left the theater, nobody said, hi, Ken. (laughs) I'm not sure how I'd react to that. But again, so much credit to Greta Gerwig, uh, who's got an interesting filmography, various films, I mean, different subjects. Again, talking about the look of this film, how perfectly she captures it, she has referred to what she calls authentic artificiality. And Mm -hmm. that's what she's doing. She has an aesthetic and she visualizes it perfectly here. So that's really terrific. And since we're singing her praises, she is now the the, the first female director to ever make a film making this much money beyond Wonder Woman, beyond anything. And boy, I'll tell you right now, the job offers are, are probably pouring in there because, you know, she's so gifted as a director and she's so disciplined. You know, this is a film where you want a consistent look. And this film achieves it. It, stay, it creates its own aesthetic, if you will, and, and then stays within it. So, you know, talk about eye candy that I really enjoyed. You know, the film has some more serious themes you can mull over, but the heck with that, right? I just enjoyed watching it. It was just a pleasure to watch. It is eye candy and everything. There's so much pink, but in a fun way. In fact, I think they ran out of that pink paint while they were filming. They used so much of it. It also has wonderful moments in it, I think, in terms of, you know, the whole girl power thing. There's a scene where a young girl tells Barbie off, you know, about her, you know, how she's made women feel insecure and the way you look is simply not attainable and you're a fascist. And of course, Barbie takes all this as like, she's never heard this before. She thought they would be grateful, like, but but we can be Supreme Court justices and the president and all of these things. And I also wanted to give a shout out to America Ferreira, uh, because I thought she was a wonderful character, also got to make a wonderful speech about, about what it's like to be a woman. What did you think, Mike, about those two things? Well, here's a demographic observation. The film oftentimes works best for what I'd call an adult or near adult audience, because mm-hmm. it makes references to, quote unquote, sexualized capitalism and, and <laughs> un- unrealizable unrealizable physical ideals, things like that that we could talk about in a, in a quasi-academic way. But within the film, I mean, I laughed at a lot of that, but you and I have, have talked about this uh, outside of the show, like, you know, people who really love this movie, but what if you have like a really small child who's just starting to play with Barbies? Let me turn it over to you on this one. What do you think of that? Because some of the jokes, you might have to have some certain conversations with your child on, on the ride home that you weren't quite ready for yet. What do you think? I, that's why I said it's more Lego movie than Toy Story. This is not something I would bring really young child to. By about, well, puberty, I think that it would be appropriate. But younger kids, it's not really about playing with toys. It's about the, all the cultural things that go with playing with toys in a very droll and wry and in some ways biting commentary. Well, one of the funniest scenes is actually, you know, Ken always wants to go out on dates, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and and so he's asking her out on a date, and then, and can we go back over to your place afterwards? And it's like, well, what will we do then? And he's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, actually, sure. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, actually. But that's something where adults are going to really laugh at. But like for a really small child, you know, do you want to have that conversation on the drive home? Now, I, I do know people who saw this who did not like it because they they were not prepared for any sort of speechifying about the patriarchy or the idea that women are are not meant to be mothers. 
as a, a sole goal. And they, they they didn't like it. And there's been this big backlash, you know, on the far right, which I find hilarious because the movie's done so well. And I'm wondering if it's just because women are going back to see it again. I've seen it twice and I'm going again on Friday. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Each time I see it, I see something else. Well, you know, that's always the case with movies, Mike. But I there's just so many clever things in there. Well, you know what? It helps to have a sense of humor while watching a humorous movie. And, and I think that's the thing. You have to have a sense of humor, of irony, of, of the history of this doll mm-hmm. and so on. And sure, it's going to spark political discussions, but I find it bizarre that anyone would want to boycott it, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to say it's not my cup of tea. I'm not going, but, but somehow that it's dangerous. What do they get? They're going to have like a public uh, bonfire and burn the Barbies? <laughs> actually, <laughs> Ben Shapiro actually did do that. He Did, did he do uh, that? Yes, he, burned he actually the burned the bar. Did he? He did. Yes. So, I mean, some people were really up in arms about it. But, you know, I, I want to come back to the Kate McKinnon weird Barbie, because what was so funny about that is that everybody knew somebody who had a weird Barbie or they had a weird Barbie, which is the Barbie where you cut their hair and then you realize, oh, it's not going to grow back and you draw on their face. And But the funniest line was somebody just saying as an aside, why is she always doing the splits? And what was funny about that was I realized how true it was. It's like you not only had to deface her but she had to like manhandle her body so she looked just like completely ridiculous and that's what made it I mean, there was just so many moments where you thought i know a woman wrote that or somebody who played with barbies wrote that because that line was just too perfect these are dangerous images <laughs> 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 no, but it's true. We all had times where we're like, we got carried away as we were playing mm-hmm. with, with whether G.I. Joe or, or, or Barbie, whatever, where, you know, and it's like, what did that, you know, to mark up the face or, or even to like to burn it or, I mean, people would do things like this. And this is a film that has some fun with that. There's also a pregnant midge, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, there, there's midge. That, that poor Midge, but there's there are some of the, like the outcast Barbies, the ones yes. who are not perfect. And, and the film, again, part of the smartness of the film is that it has those Barbie characters in it, you know, and, and the Barbie world, if you will. And it's really, in its own way, very sophisticated in dealing mm-hmm. with that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and of course, um, Alan, Ken's friend, he can wear all of Ken's clothes. Keep, he keeps trying to like insert himself and it just doesn't work because he's even less than, than poor Ken. I just want to make a quick note about G.I. Joe that if you played with Barbies at your friend's house and she had a brother who had G.I. Joe's, Barbie was kind of into G.I. Joe. G.I. <laughs> Joe was a, was a better date than Ken. So that, that's a whole other movie, though. But um, if you ask anybody who played with Barbies who was, you know, if there was a G.I. Joe around, that was that was the love interest. It was not poor Ken with his plastic hair. Marie, you have a doctorate in this subject. <laughs> I played with I played with a lot of Barbies. In fact, my older brother one time teased me to say, you know, you should look in the in the want ads under Barbie to see if there's a job. And of course, I'm I didn't know that that wasn't a thing. I actually did look. By the way, there were no jobs. But if there had been, I I would have been I would have been hired instantly. So anyway, that does bring us to the end of this show. But don't forget to check out our other podcasts at atmhcc.podbean.com. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Media Podcast.